Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gilef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we're going to tackle the anthropic principle. Oh, boy. Yes, <laughs> it has many variants, but it's either an observation of or an explanation for the fact that there is this series of surprising, seemingly surprising coincidences in the structure of our universe that if any one of the many fundamental parameters of the physical universe had been even slightly different, the universe would not have been able to support life. So today we're going to ask which forms of the anthropic principle are well-supported and logically coherent, and how surprised should we be that our universe is the way it is? All right, so one way to... Um Explain before we get into the. Uh, we need at some point to get into the history a little bit of the anthropic principle because, as you as you mentioned, there are many different varieties of it, and and this is a topic that is both important, especially for people who want to understand anything about uh, you know the history of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, but also very complicated because it gets really complex really really fast and uh, and confusing really fast. But before we do that, let's let's talk about sort of the intuitive version of the entropic principle, which is not an official version. It's sure. just a, a, a way to, to understand what we're talking about. Well, first maybe we should explain why the entropic principle was even developed. Why why the universe um why some people feel that the universe seems to have been fine-tuned. Um so all of these um, fundamental constants in the universe seem to have these very narrow windows of values that they could have taken that would have allowed for life to develop. So, for example, if the strong nuclear force were just a few percentage points higher, um, the universe would be all helium. Or if it were very slightly weaker, um, no helium at all would have formed and there would be nothing but hydrogen. Um, if the expansion rate of the young universe right after the Big Bang had been uh, slightly higher or if the density had been slightly lower, um, no galaxies would have coalesced. Um, and so there would have been nothing in which life could have developed. And if the density had been a little bit higher or the expansion rate had been a little bit lower, um, the universe would have collapsed in on itself again uh, right after being created. So I mean, these are just a few examples, but there's a number of other um, fundamental constants in the universe that seem to have been seemingly fine-tuned in order to um, create the kind of universe in which life ever even had a chance at developing. Right. So the typical counter to that, the, the, obvious, the obvious one is, so what? Right. It's what's, what's so special about life? Okay, so it happened that you way. You don't seem as spooked as the rest of the world, Massimo. <laughs> right. So, now, but, but, um, but unfortunately, the, the, the so what answer, as much as I'm actually sympathetic to it, uh, it's not enough. And the reason it's not enough is, is because of this analogy um, that, um, that has been proposed uh, in, in the context of this debate. So imagine that, that you are um, in front of a firing squad. 
I hope that's not going to happen anytime. But imagine you are in front of that squad, firing squad, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's 10 people um, pointing, I don't know how many normally there are on a fighting squad. Do you know? I, I have no idea. Let's but say 10. Let's say 10 because it makes easy the, cal- the calculations yes. easy. And uh, let's say that these 10 people are loading their, their rifles and they're pointing at you and, and you hear the shots. And then you realize that you survived the firing squad. Not, not a single bullet hit, hit the target. You, you're not even wounded. Nothing. Well, you could say, well, so what? Um, clearly, I'm alive now because they missed. And there's nothing particular to explain. Uh, you know, I'm happy to be alive. They can't, by, by, by law, they can't shoot again if they, if they miss you. So you're, you're free to go. Uh, or you can be a little more reasonable about it and say, how did that happen? Because the chances that 10 people who presumably are trained, at least to some extent, to shoot at a target... And they're firing simultaneously at close, close range to you that all 10 of them are going to miss. The chances of that are astronomically low. That, is in, that, that analogy encapsulates the problem with the entropy principle, or at least the, tro- the problem that the entropy principle is trying to get at. Mm-hmm. That is, you, know, you can't just shrug it off as saying, oh, well, it just happened that way, because it's an amazing set of coincidences, uh, if you want to look at it from a statistical perspective. And anything that is amazingly uh, coincidental, it's reasonable to imagine it requires some kind of explanation. So the reasoning in this this thought experiment, this analogy, is that it's so incredibly unlikely that just by chance all 10 of these gunmen would have missed, or in, you know... Uh, in our universe that all of these constants would have been set at exactly the right levels for life just by chance, that we should conclude that it's actually more likely that it wasn't just chance, that there's some reason that the constants were the way they were, or there's some reason the gunmen either intentionally missed or that the execution was sabotaged or something. And of course, the step from there is very short from making the, from 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 making that observation to jump into the conclusion that there must have been some kind of intelligent design, right? Right. Okay. I mean, not everybody that that deals with the entropy principle, in fact, m- makes that jump. But the jump is you can see why it's very easy to to make because uh, in the case of again the the analogy with the firing squad, then immediately you had to think that somebody paid off the soldiers or somebody uh, uh, surreptitiously changed the, the bullets to blank. Some, something must have happened that was certainly not just a matter of statistical coincidence. Okay. Right? So this is essentially the strong anthropic principle, you'd say? There seem to be these essentially two forms, the weak and the strong anthropic principles, right? Would you call this the strong anthropic principle? If you invoke any kind of intelligent design type of explanation, then you're definitely into the strong, the strong version of the, of the principle. So let's talk about the difference between this, these two. Right. Unfortunately, there are two, at least two different version of the strong principle and two different versions of the weak principle. Oh so Lord. this is going to take a, 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 a second to get, to get around to. The, um, the original the, the, uh, phrase, anthropic principle, goes back to 1973 to Brandon Carter. And, uh, and uh, he proposed the, the, um, uh, the weak version, which is called WAP, WAP mm-hmm. and the strong version, which is called SAP, SAP. So according to, to Carter, I'm quoting now directly so that I'm not going to um, be, uh, we're not going to be accused of making up stuff here. That, uh, for Carter, the weak version is this. We must be prepared to take account of the fact that our location in the universe is necessarily privileged to the extent of being compatible with our existence as observers. What he meant here was simply this, that if you pick a random point during the history of the universe, not all these random points in time, in space-time, are in fact equally likely to uh, find life present. And that's, if you think about it, that's pretty, pretty obvious, right? Because if you pick a, a time too early, 
uh, close to the Big Bang, then galaxies are not formed and therefore life was not possible. If you pick a point too late in the history of the universe, into the, sometime in the distant future, when the, the universe has expanded dramatically and it has cooled down dramatically, then the thermodynamics are such that life is probably not going to be supported. So he was just talking about how surprising is it that we're at this particular point in time in the universe and not... How, light, how surprising is it that the universe is constructed the way it is? Right. Okay. So he was saying, you know, there's nothing to be surprised here, but there is the, acknowledge, the acknowledgement that this particular time in the universe, by this time, of course, he didn't mean today. He meant this range, large range of several millions, probably hundreds of millions of years, is not a typical moment in the history of the universe. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. Now, then he talked about the strong version. Carter talked about the strong version, which says, the universe must be such as to admit the creation of observers within it at some stage. Or as, to, as he put it, to paraphrase Descartes, I think, therefore, the world is such as it is. Descartes famously said, I think, therefore, I am, right? right? Now, what does Carter mean here? He says, well, um, clearly we also have to conclude that the universe is made in such a way that makes possible for observers, for sentient observers and self-aware observers, to be there. Again, notice that this is an observation. It's not necessarily an explanation of the fact. Uh, he's simply saying that, okay, we do not live, in a, live in, a, in a random moment or time in the universe, and in fact, that, random, that non-random moment or end time is such, had to be such that um, intelligent life could evolve. Right? Okay. That's not too bad. The trouble really started a few years later. So this was 1973. Mm-hmm. In 86, a book uh, uh, by the Anthropic Cosmological Principle was published by John Barrow and Frank Tipler. Now, Frank Tipler went on to write a lot of nonsense later on, which probably colors my, uh, my perception of, of uh, Tipler. Uh, for instance, he wrote most recently The Physics of Christianity, where he tries to show that physics, fundamental physics actually confirms the history of Christianity and the truth of Christian doctrine. You know what I can think about that. So. I have some suspicions. Right. Now, um, uh, Baron Tipler came up, also used the words weak and strong and troubling principle, but they gave them, interestingly, some quite different definitions from Carter. And this is where, as I said, the thing becomes interesting. Uh, according to Barrow and Tipler, the uh, weak and tropic principle, the WAP, is this. The observed values of all physical and cosmological quantities are not equally probable, but they take on values restricted by the requirement that there exists sites where carbon-based life can evolve and by the requirements that the universe be old enough for it to have already done so. Now, this is just a, a little stronger version of what Carter was saying. They, they, they're essentially saying, look, again, we're not in a random place in the universe. And the constants, the, the physical constants are also not random because if you, pick them, if you pick them at random, the chances that you do get something like life are very, very, very tiny. And then they say... The strong version of their principle is the universe must have those properties which allow life to develop within it at some stage in its history. Notice the use of the word must. Okay. And, and the reason that they're concluding that is that if it didn't have to a priori somehow uh, develop these uh, constants necessary for life, then it would have been just so incredibly unlikely that they would have happened just by chance if they hadn't already been constrained was I that think the they're saying even more than that. I think that uh, what they're saying is that the universe, for some reason that, of course, they don't specify, 
must have those properties that led to life and in particular to intelligent life. That is, there but was there... A, a constraint, a reason from the beginning um, that the universe had to be that way and couldn't be otherwise. But their reason for thinking that is that it would be just too unlikely to happen just by chance? Right. Okay, That's right. The, the reason is similar to the analogy of the firing squad. Okay. Right? So about the firing squad example, it seems... I've heard this example before, this analogy, and it doesn't actually seem to be a very apt analogy to our universe taking the values that it it did. Because if you're going to say that an outcome is surprising, you have to sort of have defined ahead of time what the relevant outcome is that you're interested in. Um, And then if it's very unlikely and it, and it happens, then you can be surprised. But if, if something happens and you hadn't ahead of time defined um, what outcome you were interested in, then no matter how unlikely the resulting outcome is, it's not necessarily surprising. So um, that's right. I remember uh, an anecdote that Richard Feynman, um, he, uh, before giving a lecture one day, he, he said to the audience, ladies and gentlemen, you'll never believe what happened to me on my way over here. I saw a car with the license plate HG3757. I mean, what are the chances of that? And his point, of course, was that every license plate is incredibly rare. Um, if he had, you know, before leaving his home said, I wonder if I'll see a license plate with the, you know, HG3757, and then he did, that would be incredibly surprising. But he, he right. didn't establish this outcome ahead of time. So it, this is sort of, it's also called the sharpshooter fallacy, that you, you fire a gun at a blank wall, and then you go up to the bullet hole and you draw a target around it. Exactly. And you're like, amazing. Exactly. So, amazing. I hit the target. Right. Yes. So, okay. So in the, in the firing squad example, ahead of time, you were like, oh man, I really hope I live, but what are the chances of that? And then you live. And that's really surprising. Right. Um, but obviously there was no one around ahead of time to um, to wonder if there would be life. And so the fact that there's life is not necessarily surprising. I think you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, what you're doing there is, I, I think, two things. First of all, you, in, in, your, your counterexample of the, of the plate uh, um, highlights the danger of metaphors, right? Mm-hmm. Once you start thinking about the autonomy principle in terms of the, the uh, firing squad, then you really b- start thinking that there really is a problem. There really is, this is really something amazing that ne- needs an explanation. But if you think about the same problem in terms of the license plates, then all of a sudden this disappears into a, non- a non-problem, a non-issue. Now, the, the thing that uh, keeps this issue uh, of the entropic principle uh, coming back, however, is that we don't know at the moment, in which situation we are. We don't know whether we are in the situation of the firing squad or in the situation of the, of the uh, license plate. And the reason we don't know is because, as you, as you pointed out, we have to have a baseline, and we don't have a baseline. We do not have an actual, actual, actual knowledge of the statistical distribution of the physical constants. Mm-hmm. So when these people say, for instance, when some of the people that are interested in uh, that write about the entropic principle say, well, it is... Very unlikely that the physical constant, let's say the gravitational constant, uh, should take that exact value instead of any of an infinite num- uh, number of possible other values. They're making a, a big assumption. They're making the assumption that, in fact, the gravitational constant could take any of an infinite number of values. In other words, uh, they're assuming that there is a flat, uniform statistical distribution of values. But what if there isn't? What if, in fact, the gravitational constant only could take one value or maybe only one of a very small range of values? Then it wouldn't be at all surprising that the gravitational constant is the way it is. Right. So if, if we were to somehow find some way that these fundamental constants were actually all linked so that they weren't 
all independently arriving at the exact value needed to support life, but that, say, if one were determined, you could somehow deduce the others, um, then it would be much less surprising and much less requiring of explanation. Right. So, the, which means that the real problem uh, uh, is that we, that uh, the entropy principle is trying to get at is where do these fundamental constants come from? What what is the origin? What is what are the physical constraints that determine the fundamental constant? And that is a serious problem in physics. I mean, that is in fact one of the things that phys- fundamental physicists are interested in. Now, before we go on in, in, on that on that line, however, let me. Um, bring up another couple of, of uh, anthropic principles, because as, as we said earlier, there is a variety of them, and some of them become pretty funny. I pretty read somewhere that there are actually 30, someone counted 30 it's, different variants. That's just amazing. We, we won't go through all of them. That's just amazing. No, we won't get all of them. But Barry uh, and Tipler uh, later on added another version of the anthropic principle, which they call FAP, Final Anthropic Principle. And this one says, intelligent information processing must come into existence in existence in the universe and once it comes into existence it will never die out wow i wonder where, where does they that get come that. from well that's tipler's idea of uh, merging physics and christianity so he's saying yeah. essentially that uh the idea of of uh perennial life in some sense in the christian sense of you know rebirthing under after death and all that is in fact has in fact physical foundations and the physical foundation is that life in the universe not only had to come into existence, but in fact, once that it comes into existence, never dies out. And now, how does he know that outside of reading in his own very special way the New Testament? I have no idea. This is clearly not science. Our listeners can't see the face I'm making, Massimo, now, but you but can. But they should. Maybe we should make <laughs> yeah. this a video po- podcast at some point. Then there is John Wheeler, uh, who came up with this idea of the participatory anthropic principle, or PAP, uh, which states that uh, states that observers are necessary to bring the universe into being. Wow, necessary? What do you mean? I mean, this seems like uh, arching back to uh, a philosophy of idealism, where the universe is here only because we can think of it. That if we stop thinking about it, then it doesn't exist. Uh, because what he's saying is literally that observers are necessary to bring in, in, into existence the universe. This is a clearly misapplication of basic principles of quantum mechanics. You know, in quantum mechanics, there is a thing uh, called the observer effect, which essentially says that um, certain quantities in quantum mechanics are going to be known only after, only if you do an experiment, only at the moment in which you do an experiment, only when you measure the position of the electron you're going to be, or the, the, the speed of the electron or whatever, or the spin of the electron, you're going to be able to know it. There is no way a priori before you make the, the measurement, which is called in quantum mechanics the observer effect. Uh, Wheeler has basically made a cosmological version of the, of the uh, effect, and he claims that the entire universe wouldn't exist unless we were thinking about it. Now, I wonder if our listeners can spot what the basic fallacy there is. If the universe, if, the, if observers are necessary to bring the universe into existence, where are these, universe, these observers before they think about the universe? Are they somehow outside of the universe? Are they inside of the universe? I mean, who are these observers? Where are they located? Massimo, it's a good thing you warmed me up first with the final anthropic <laughs> principle, because otherwise my eyes would really hurt from all the rolling that they're doing now. <laughs> I did my warm-ups. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And then finally, of course, I cannot, we cannot simply do a show like this on anthropic principle without uh, mentioning Martin Gardner's sarcastic version of, of the principle. He called it the completely ridiculous anthropic principle, or crap, or short. <laughs> of course. And um, um, I, that's my favorite, actually. Um, um, I'd, I'd like to just go back to one of the less 
outlandish formulations of the anthropic principle. Yes, let's. Um, so let's let's talk about the the weak anthropic principle as it's as it's commonly used. Um, it's saying that we shouldn't be surprised that constants are the way they are because conditional on someone being around to observe them, they had to be that way. And so it's not surprising. And so this seems almost tautological, but it occurred to me that it, it actually only, it should only apply if you have multiple universes or at least multiple opportunities at a universe. Um, right. Because, right. Because then even if this particular you know set of constants is extremely unlikely, if you have lots of different chances for it to occur, then you'll get, you know, one or two, cases in which they do. And then of course the observers in those universes will look around and go, Oh my God, what are the odds? So, so that does seem to resolve the, the seeming spookiness of these constants values, but that's only true if you have lots of universes. If our universe is the one and only universe that has ever existed, then how does the weak anthropic principle actually help explain why the constants are the way they are? Uh, that's a good point. Now that, that brings us to the actually the serious part of, of, of this discussion, which is, as we mentioned earlier, there is in fact a a problem to be solved. I mean, there is an, a, a question there, a fundamental question, which is where do the, fun, the fundamental constants in physics come from? And essentially, there are only two major classes of answers available at the moment. One is the one you just talked about. Mm -hmm. That is the idea of a multiverse, the idea that there are multiple universes out there, each one of which is a random combination of uh, physical constants. And of course, as unlikely as it is, one of those universes had to be or likely was going to be our own particular universe, because if you generate an infinite number of combinations, eventually you're going to hit, um, presumably, on one that looks like ours. In which case, of course, the fact that we're so special is not really that surprising because we're not so special. We're just one of um, an infinite number of universes. Right. That's the multiverse theory, which, is, which comes out of fundamental physics today. Mm -hmm. There is an alternative. And, and, and the alternative is, in fact, uh, uh, connected, interestingly, to one of our uh, latest episodes, and that's the, the one on string theory. Mm -hmm. So string theory is an alternative version of the solution, basically. You can think of string theory as an alternative solution to the problem of the, posed by the entropy principle. Because string theory uh, says that, in fact, it's not true that the fundamental constants could take any of an, of an infinite number of values. They had to take only a very small, very particular kind of value. And that particular kind of value is predicted by string theory. In other words, string theory becomes an explanation for why the fundamental constants are actually constraints a priori before you, see, you even get the universe started. Right. So those are the two alternatives. Now, the problem with those two alternatives is this. Neither one of them at the moment, at least, is empirically testable. Mm -hmm. We do not have access to multiverses, so we, can't, we cannot observe other universes with different laws of physics. And as we heard from our uh, guest recently, uh, Peter Voigt, uh, string theory itself is not testable, at least again at the moment. So we do have two possible answers to the question of where do the fundamental constants in physics come from. Unfortunately, neither one of them is empirically testable, which means neither one at the moment really is science. It's right. just some interesting speculation. Yeah. So uh, to wrap up, I, I should say that one common response that I've heard is that um, that we don't we don't actually need an explanation. That the constants had to take some set of values, and they just happened to take this one. And and it only seems surprising to us because we happen to be the life that evolved. But um, but the constants could have easily taken other values, and some other form of life could have evolved that we, with our current brains and the current state of the universe, wouldn't even have recognized as a, a potential form of life. One of our commenters, uh, Antonio Manetti, said, you know, I wonder if we aren't suffering from a lack of imagination regarding what life is or could be throughout this or any other universe. 
Um, the only problem I have with that kind of response, that sort of philosophical resolution to this problem, is that the vast majority of of the sets of values that the constants could take lead to universes with such high entropy that it it's really hard to imagine any form of life that could possibly evolve in a universe that's you know completely helium or completely hydrogen. Um, but, right, but on the other hand, you know the, the the value of that particular answer is this: that why are we putting such a such a high value on life and in particular intelligence life, intelligent life? Well, when when it seems pretty clear at the moment, at least from what we know, that the overwhelming majority of space time, meaning both the universe as it is now and the universe as it has been and will be in the future, is in fact empty space. So really, what the entropy principle seems to be explaining is not that m- as much the presence of life, but the presence of galaxies and planets and rocks and stuff out there, dust out there. All right, but that's much less sexy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and so people are not interested. People, it seems to me, this seems to me, uh, uh, as as the word entropic in fact implies, if a fundamental streak there of of anthropocentrism that we know somehow we are the most important thing in the universe we're the pinnacle of the universe so we require a special explanation and a special set of conditions for coming about boy that talk about hubris (laughs) right all right we're going to wrap this section of the podcast up and move on to the rationally speaking picks Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is the TV series House. It's uh, a really entertaining show about this uh, cantankerous genius doctor, a diagnostician named Dr. House, who takes on all of the incredibly difficult cases that none of the other doctors could solve. And every episode is him and his... Crackerjack team racing against the clock to try to figure out what's wrong with the patient um, before the patient croaks. So uh, I, I love this show. Um, and well, actually, before I go any farther describing House, I just want to back up and say that in general, uh, when when you're watching a TV show or a movie produced um, by sort of mainstream by Hollywood, um, you may have noticed that things don't tend to work out very well for the skeptic. <laughs> the right. pl- plot lines tend to be resolved in favor of the believer. Like either you have, you know, the, the skeptic saying, oh, of course there aren't monsters under the bed, and then, you know, he gets eaten, eaten by a monster. Right. <laughs> or um, The X-Files being the obvious example. Oh, right, of course, yeah. Well, that's, that's just one among many. It's, it's really prevalent. Um, or, or the skeptic is sort of the killjoy who says, you know, well, there's no such thing as miracles, and then, you know, it's Christmas, and the person's miraculously saved, and a star twinkles in the sky, and, yes. you know, it's all, it's, somehow this is seen as the much more heartwarming narrative, and so this is what we get. And so I bring this up because House, um, one of the many reasons I enjoy House is that it, I always saw it as taking the opposite tack. Uh, Dr. House is a, um, a confirmed atheist and a diehard rationalist and empiricist, and He's continually getting these patients who come in believing that something supernatural is happening, um, and he's convinced that he can find a, a rational empirical explanation for what's going on, and he does. And so I would, I would watch these episodes and go, wow, that's really it's just so refreshing. Um, and then what I realized recently is that the episodes are actually, they're very carefully, I think, very carefully and intentionally constructed um, to be interpreted 
in like according to whatever you already were inclined to believe. So I started realizing that if they only seem to be coming down on my side as a skeptic because I'm I'm uh, viewing them as a skeptic. But if I were a believer, they would I think they would seem to be confirming what I already believed. So I'm, I'm going to give you a couple examples. Um, there was an episode. Uh, there's, uh, this isn't every single episode, but it's happened maybe two or three times that I've seen, and I haven't seen every single episode. So in one of the earlier seasons, a woman is uh, really freaked out because she thinks that she's been cursed, that she's been fated to die soon. Um, and uh, so House takes on the case because he, he wants to prove to her that there's really no such thing as curses and fate, and he can, he can show that she's not really dying um, and th- so the reason that she thinks she's cursed is that there's this, this cat that she thinks can predict, uh, who's going to die and it'll come sit by the bed of whoever's going to die. And so it's come sit by her bed. And so she's all freaked out. And so house eventually solves, you know, spoiler alert, sorry, <laughs> solves the, right. the problem. And he figures out that, Oh, the, the cat goes to sit by whoever's the warmest. And so the, the patients who are dying, uh, say of, of fever, um, their, their beds are warmer. And so the cat sits by them. So he figures this out and, you know, he cures her. And, you know, he says, see, there's no such thing as curses and fate. I figured it out. And she says, ah, no, but there, there was a curse. And by figuring it out, you broke the curse. And so, ah, right. so I'm watching this and I'm like, oh, this is a show about, you know, the, the narrative of this show is about people with superstitious beliefs and, you know, the triumph of, of empirical investigation over those beliefs because House actually solved it. Um, and then I realized that if I were a believer, I would actually see that and, and um, come away believing that, that the show was actually on my side. Um, and there was, there was another episode recently in which uh, a guy believes in karma, and he believes that the reason that his son is dying is that he's had so much good fortune in the rest of his life, he the father, um, that his son is dying to sort of cancel out the good fortune. So he, he gives away all of his money, hoping that that will somehow magically save his son. And House actually does cure the son. Right. Um, and the father is convinced that that's because he gave away all his right. money. Which one is the cause and which one is the effect? Right, there. exactly. Right. And so as a skeptic, you watch that and you're like, yeah, this is a show about the psychology of people who are superstitious and right. who will do anything to try to save their son. Um, and as a believer, I would watch that, I'm sure, and say, well, of course, you know, the son was house solved the case right after the guy cured, uh, right that's after right. the guy gave away his money. That's right. Um, so that's a very a really good point. Um, and if actually, actually, this, this um, um, is a good. Um, Introduction to my pick, which is uh, a uh, website called endphilosophy.com, and as in A-N-D. This is a Blackwell publisher uh, website, and it's about a collection of books about philosophy and popular culture that have been produced over the last several years. I've actually participated in a couple of of these uh, these volumes. And uh, the basic idea is to pick a... uh, a pop culture icon or phenomenon, like a TV show or a movie or a, or a, or a director or, a, or something uh, that is that resonates with in, in terms of popular culture, and then ask a bunch of philosophers to write essays aimed at the general public that use the show, the movie, or whatever it is as an, a way to introduce the public to certain aspects of philosophy. And interestingly, if you look at the website right now, as I'm doing, the first title that shows up is House and Philosophy. So clearly, the show, that show has inspired a lot of philosophers to write Someone's about it. Someone's been tapping my phone calls again. It could be. <laughs> uh, but there are several others. And, uh, uh, and typically, these, uh, these books are, are actually very well written uh, for, for a, a, at a general public level. Um, and they tend to focus on particular aspects of philosophy. So, for instance, there is a, a fairly old one about Woody Allen and philosophy. And that one, uh, if, if anybody's familiar with Woody Allen's movies, of course, it deals with existentialism, with metaphysics, and, uh, and in, to some extent uh, with, uh, with issues of ethics and relationships. 
but if you pick, you know, uh, uh, if you pick, there's there's one on science fiction and uh, uh, so, for instance, in particular, Battlestar Galactica and philosophy, and that one deals. Uh, if people are familiar with that particular show. Um, with issues of uh, uh, artificial intelligence, of course, and also of the rights of machines or versus human beings and things of that sort. So it's it's a really very very good collection of books. Uh, Blackwell is not the only one that puts out these things. Uh, there are several publishers over the last few years that have done these, which have, over a period of years, revolutionized the whole idea of popularizing philosophy. It used to be that the only way to popularize philosophy was to write yet another book about summarizing very briefly what a bunch of uh, dead old white men uh, used to think. And uh, now it's become much more dynamic, it's much more interesting, and it generates a lot more uh, discussions and, I think, understanding of philosophy. Do they they talk about the uh, Homer Simpson's Classic posing of the omnipotence paradox. Could God? Mike yes. In fact, one of the best. So bo- that's right. One of the best books in the in the series is the Simpsons and philosophy. And yes, <laughs> absolutely, uh, that's there. Cool. Okay, we're going to wrap up this episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>